The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, welcome everyone. Nice to see folks tonight. And uh, some of you know we've been the last few weeks, and we'll continue for at least a month or so. We've been looking at this intersection of human awareness being present mindful awareness, right, and what we might call love or loving kindness, goodwill. The Pali word is metta. Most of you have heard that around. It's a common word. Sometimes we don't translate it because often the word love has, well, it's, it's been damaged, right? So feel free to reform the word love or loving kindness or use the Pali word metta. Because what we want to discover, just from observing our own mind, our own heart, that metta or that basic goodness of our heart, this capacity to be intimate and this capacity to include, oh yeah, this belongs, right? Because that's really the quality of love. Like when you think of love in a more ordinary sense, like the kind of good, natural, resilient love you might have for like a granddaughter or a cat or something like that. It's like you have this ability to include that person or that beast. You don't pick and choose. Oh, now I can include you. Oh, you're acting like that. I mean, even if you're somebody who has to discipline a child, you know, if you're a healthy caretaker, you don't throw them out of your heart because you have to give them feedback or because you have to, you know, you go to your room. doesn't mean you don't love them, right? So this capacity to include, right? So in Buddhism or in our practice of awareness, we realize it's not so much something that I have to do. Oh, I have to be kind. I have to be good. It's, sometime, it's something we realize is there when the mind isn't under the influence of its bad habits, basically. So that's why one of the reasons I like the Buddhist teachings on loving kindness, or metta, is because he often talks about it more in terms of non-aversion than about what it is. It's really about, I mean, and that's, that's kind of an amazing thing to recognize in a, just in an ordinary sense, like this heart, you know, checking in, this heart, I don't see any aversion operating right now. I don't see how fear right now is coloring my mind. That's an unusual moment. When's the last time you notice the absolute absence of fear and aversion. Right? It's not common. And often when there is are those moments of kind of a more natural love, spiritual love, so not a love with an attachment or a business kind of love, like I'll love you if you love me, if you behave, then I'll behave. But just a generous quality of our heart, just that, heart that opens. Maybe whenever spring comes and it's a warm day and we see something green and 
creatures happy and people happy, you might just notice that kind of abundance, almost like a upwelling, right, of the heart and just sort of spills out. You're not like trying to send your goodness out, but it sort of wants to go out naturally. There's an overabundance of it. So we're really going from like, oh yeah, I should be kind, I should be tender-hearted to getting a deeper sense of the naturalness and a deeper sense of what gets in the way, what attitudes or habits, conditioned habits of aversion and fear get in the way of a more natural, and I think it's useful to say effortless expression of goodness or kindness or love or whatever you want to call it. What gets in the way of that? Another way to reflect, like in just taking these months when Shelley and I are going to be talking about loving kindness, maybe some of the other uh, teachers that are teaching when I'm out of town be covering, you know, just reflecting in their own way on this subject, um, is just to get interested in what gets in the way and also getting a clearer sense of what that basic goodness natural goodness of the heart, or maybe it's better to call it a natural capacity for goodness, what that is and what it isn't. And so one of the ways you can explore this this week or next few weeks is like when you feel what seems to you to be love, then look and see if that experience that you're calling love, see if there's any business relationship with it, any attachment, any conditions. So you're feeling your heart being generous in some way, whatever it is that's moving your heart. And and then you want to look, is that movement dependent on something? Now, I mentioned like the spring day that might happen <laughs> somewhere down the road. Um, now, that might initially seem to be the cause of kind of an upwelling, just a very generous, I love life, I love everything, yes to everything. You know, it's easy when it's 60 degrees and sunny and the birds are chirping and crocuses are poking their way up through the cold soil and people are wearing, not wearing their you know, burdensome coats and heavy boots. Right? It's, it's easier to have that generous heart. But then when you look at it, when you look at the actual experience of that upwelling, that generosity, that goodness of the heart, then you can check, like, yeah, it might have been provoked by the nice weather, <coughs> but it is, is it actually tied in some way, dependent in some way on the weather? Can you imagine, like, the cloud coming in front of the sun and then a snow flurry or whatever, icy wind, and not losing. Because then if you do lose it, then that's not metta. That's love with attachment. (coughs) That love's really dependent on a particular condition like the nice weather. And you can check that out too. Like when you're with a lover or with your pet, and then, you know, your pet doesn't 
behave or your lover doesn't behave the way that you find lovely? And then does that generous quality of your heart shift into irritation? Well, then again, that's not love, really. That's more this business deal we make with people that when you're lovely, then I'm going to be lovely. When you're not lovely, then I'm going to close my heart to you. I'm not going to be generously present. I'm not going to have the sense, this too belongs. I'll have the sense, this doesn't belong, (laughs) right? This part of you I can't say yes to. Now that doesn't mean, I mean, like I mentioned before, there are places, especially in some of our relationships, where it's really our responsibility to speak up and say this is not acceptable. And that can be done in a loving way, right? Like in including my own needs and including who you are, including the situation, including the history of human beings and all that we drag along because of our cultural conditioning. You know, from that place of including, I'm responding in this way. It's a generous, like what you say, it might actually be quite hurtful to the person, be really unpleasant speaking your truth to them, but it can still come from this generous and inclusive way of being. And that's the interesting thing to explore. When attachment, when aversion is present, then to really name that, recognize that as, well, whatever it is, it's not love. It's not wholesome. It's not deeply healing. It may be quite common, maybe sort of the predominant quality that's there in our relationships, but we wouldn't call it spiritually liberating or deeply emotionally healing that, those moments. But we do bump into those moments that are quite healing and freeing and trustworthy and then because of the teachings, then we'll have the, more of a sense of checking it out, like, oh, yeah, I don't see any fear here. Instead of uh, a kind of in- inward, like, I need you to take care of me, that inner goodness that in moments that we're in touch with, it, it doesn't have any need or if you want to say, you could say it has the need to show up and to kind of meet the moment in an appropriate way. I mean, that's actually kind of a nice definition of love in a very general sense. Love is that quality of the heart that seems to be able to, seems to even want to show up in an intimate way, in a connected way. And because of that intimacy, that connection not being defended, it's able to respond to say what needs to be said, to act in ways that really contribute to the moment, that aren't causing harm. And that's just an interesting thing to begin to see, love with attachment, love without attachment. Is there anything polluting? Is there anything contaminating? Is there anything limiting the goodness of my heart? Oh, yeah this fear, this need, 
this wound, this pain, right? And the identification with it. And then we're just being honest about what's going on. That's the first step because when we do see the limitations, because it's almost always there, like we're in relationship with other people and situations and we see it's not perfect love. It's not effortless, generous, healing love. It's something other than that. But the interesting thing is, and you can even drop this in as a question, okay, so I am showing up in this moment in a limited way. I have needs. I need my cat to behave a certain way, or I need my partner, or I need the world to be a way, in a way that it's not, and I'm feeling not fed, I'm feeling not taken care of. But the question we can drop in is, well, can I include that feeling of being needy, feeling of being a mess, feeling of needing to hit someone or break something, you know, when we're hurting and angry because of that. Then, see, this is the, the real practice, is that curiosity. So, okay, I'm a mess. I'm not a wholesome human being in this moment. But is there a way for me or for my heart, let's say, the wisdom and goodness of the heart, is there a way to show up to being a mess that's quite generous and beautiful and healing and liberating. So instead of thinking, i got to first stop being a mess, and then I can be free, the more interesting practice question is, okay, the world's a mess, I'm a mess, my relationship is a mess, a lot of my dispositions are getting triggered and they're not very wholesome. And now, because we've, we're in this training, we're more likely to remember, is this actually a problem? Is there a way, is there a capacity? That's, I like that word. Is there a capacity here in the heart, like an alchemy, to transform this prob- what appears to me very clearly to be a problem? I'm struggling, some not-so-wholesome Habits of my heart and mind are, have been triggered. I'm acting out my defensiveness or my nastiness or whatever it is. And then we notice that and we have the wherewithal to ask, can I show up in a beautiful way to this mess? Isn't that an interesting question? You know, love, <clears throat> this capacity for goodness, it uh, dies through not being called upon, like it shrivels because it's not being called upon. And in the other way, it really develops, it gets very strong, becomes a, a more predominant, more regular force in our heart from being called on. Like just being curious about what is the capacity of my heart. You know how it is, like you bang your head on the kitchen cabinet and you're late, like, and then you spill, like I almost spilled my water, you know, and, you got, and you're getting more late, and then there's a phone call and a text that bugs you. And, and it can feel like one thing after another. It often does. 
And then it's such an interesting question to ask, like, is there a way, like, is there a way for that love to, to kind of hold all this? Is there something that can hold all of this or meet all of this or relax with all of this? Or is it written in stone that there has to be a me who's suffering? And I, I've often said, some of you have heard this, I'm sure, but when I think back over the you know, 37 years or so of practice, like, well, because sometimes people ask, well, what do you notice from years of practice? And one of the sort of more clear things is my mind, my heart, is very suspicious when my answer is, no, like the feeling, the internal feeling is, no, I have to be a suffering being right now. And there's like no space in the mind, like no curiosity, no possibility of anything but that conclusion, no, 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 I deserve, I need to be a suffering human being right now. Because of X, Y, and Z, there's no alternative. Like that happens much Less, I mean that, and then even when that does happen, because it does happen, but very quickly now I notice, like, I mean, quite literally, I'll sometimes even laugh out loud, but sometimes it's just an internal like, well, that's that's so funny, that I thought that just being miserable was my only option, because it's never our, our only option. I mean, that's the fundamental teaching. And initially, you're going to get this, if you're relatively new, just as an intellectual thing, which is fine. Like, okay, the Buddha says, or Mark said, that there's always another option to the idea that I have to be miserable or I am miserable. That's who I am in some sort of defining sense. Right now, I'm miserable because of because we always have the evidence, and we're good. Our mind, that thinking part of the mind, <clears throat> once we have a fixed idea that I'm miserable and I should be miserable, the thinking mind is very good at sort of like a lawyer, you know, kind of getting our facts in line to sort of support that fixed idea that I'm miserable right now. Life is bad. Happiness has escaped me. And this is, I think, where love, the understanding and the direct experience, just from being curious about the heart's capacity to include, the heart's capacity to heal the wounds of resentment and aversion, the wounds of fear, the wounds of guilt or shame. These things can be healed. And, And the most important thing is for the wisdom not to be confused by how convincing the idea that I need to be a suffering being right now. Really? I mean, just that, like, really, do I? And, And this is the great thing about the qualities of love because just that, like, it's not like you're, you're, we just call the bluff. I mean, that might happen in moments when there's a lot of momentum, a lot of confidence. 
But a lot of times we were, were really believing that I'm a miserable, suffering human being. But there's just this tiny little thread of being that kind of grandmotherly love. Well, let me just be there for you. You know, I'm doomed. I'm suffering. It's never going to change. But let me just be there. And then we might notice, like, being there with being a miserable human being is not the same as just being a miserable human being. There's already a little healing just in caring about how I'm doomed. Right? So that's what we have to learn over time is all the different alchemy, the ways of transformation. And nothing will happen unless there's at least a crack like where we don't believe the projection of our mind around suffering. And that's why I said, like, even if it's only on an intellectual level, like I heard once that when it really seems apparent that I'm suffering, as stupid as it will seem in that moment, I'm going to remember the words. It may not have to be this way. It's not, because it can feel insulting to tell yourself, you know, wise people tell me I'm not really suffering. Because then you feel even worse. It's like you're really suffering, and then on top of that you layer down, and I'm not supposed to feel I'm suffering. I must be doing something wrong. I'm not only suffering, but I'm doing something wrong. right? So what you want to bring in is just curiosity about it. Well, let me get a little closer to this experience. Let me get interested. Because like I was saying in the guided meditation, that brings the heart closer, that brings the mind closer. That that including, that inclusivity, already is bringing love into the equation. Because there's a real overlap or... uh, you know, two sides of the same coin between wisdom, which sort of cuts through projections, the overlays of our ideas, right? It just can meet things, experience in and of itself. It's just this being known. But love doesn't depend on clarity. It's kind of its superpower, right? That's why equanimity is, uh, if you weren't here last week, I mentioned the four qualities of love. So there's the basic goodness or friendliness. That's the word metta. And when that basic goodness runs into suffering, we have compassion, karuna. And when that basic goodness runs into beauty or goodness, we have that appreciative joy or mudita. But the background for all expressions of love is equanimity. It's really, there's no real love without equanimity. And part of that, part of what equanimity brings to what we call love, that ability to be close, that ability to include, that deep, resonant value of not wanting to add harm, not wanting, not wishing to contribute to suffering, this equanimity, what it brings to the equation is it's like I'm going to show up, I'm going to include, I'm going to feel, I'm going to engage, no matter what, even if I have, haven't a clue. 
the only clue I have is to show up, is to be interested, is to feel what I'm feeling, see what I'm seeing. And that's a superpower not to be dependent for our mind or our heart, not to be dependent on knowing what we're doing. Just, I mean, that's one way to say it. And you'll see that like in, when you notice moments where you, you're really trusting the goodness of your heart, you'll see that you have a way of operating, engaging without a plan or without feeling secure like you know what you're doing. What you know is to show up and keep you know, being intimate and to let that connection guide you in how you're showing up. So you're not lost in an idea, I've got to save this person or I've got to save me. It's really this dance of intimacy and engagement or intimacy and responsivity. And it's really, the emphasis is more on the inclusivity, the sensitivity, because the, the giving, the what you say and what you do, that just flows out of that willingness to be intimate, to feel, to see, right? And like I said a little bit earlier in the talk, you know, love, metta, it isn't something we do, it's something we are. And that's the same with compassionate action. Because we're the habit, you know, in terms of culture and language, is to think that I'm being compa- I'm doing something compassionate. But it's really the absence, like the controlling, fear-based, aversive qualities have been removed. And then what's left? This is the question for us to kind of notice in moments in our life. What's left when there's not that fear and aversion? And how does that really support engagement? saying what needs to be said, doing what needs to be done. Not that we'll do it perfectly, but because of the presence of love, if it's off in some way, because love has that profound sensitivity, that inclusivity, right? We're really there with that sensitive heart. Like those, for, my, for me, as a, uh, being raised as a Catholic, we had those statues. I had several in my bedroom growing up, St. Joseph, you know that, and then uh, Jesus, Mary, Saint Francis. You know, and they all have their hearts, sort of. You know, in my statues, a half an inch out there. <laughs> you know, these raw hearts, and it's just such a powerful archetypal image of sensitivity. Like we lead with that sensitivity. We don't mind feeling what we feel, seeing. <coughs> what we see, heartbreaking, heart-appreciating beauty, heart-intimate with ambiguity and uncertainty and knowing that I don't know. That's the very definition of love, that exposure, that sensitivity. Because a lot of times, you know, especially with our superficial sense of power and, you know, what makes somebody powerful or you know, and, and generally we equate power and goodness and with ideas of perfection. And like 
being immune from feeling like, or being immune from being touched by life. I brought along some quotes. One of the people that's really good at making these points is uh, Stephen Levine. Some of you know Stephen Levine. <clears throat> he, I don't know, he, he, I mean, he was definitely a Buddhist practitioner, but he did a lot of yogic practices and other practices as well. And this is in his book, Unattended Sorrow. And just a few things, a few words he writes there about perfection. He says, we attempt to be perfect, perhaps even to become enlightened, but enlightenment does not perfect the personality, only the point of view. Many sages even disagree about what constitutes the long-considered absolute perfection of enlightenment. And then later, after 45 years of meditative observation of myself and others, I have come to believe that there is really no everlasting enlightenment or perfection. Another way people have talked about this is there are no enlightened beings, only enlightened moments. And there's some powerful teaching in that simple phrase. It's not about like just bringing it back to love me becoming a more loving person. It's much more about me or awareness learning to recognize and appreciate moments where love is operating because that's what grows it organically. And you know, one of the telltale signs when you, if you take up this instruction to get interested, I mentioned this last week, just get interested in moments where there's a natural intimacy, a natural releasing of boundaries, a natural responsivity, a natural openness. So what we might call love, moments of natural love, and then moments of, and I think it's useful to say, natural aversion, natural moments of the heart being closed, feeling separate, feeling resentful, You know, all the ways we separate or close down. Just noticing that is quite impactful because we want to tease out. Otherwise, we have these experiences and then we want to own them so I can become perfect. But we misunderstand the phenomena of love when we think it's something I can be. We can never be love or loving or kind. But we can learn how to get out of the way And in getting out of the way, we see aversion and fear for what it is, and we see love for what it is, and that takes care of the transformation. It's too much when we think, I need to become the enlightened one, or I need to become the all-seeing, compassionate one. We ruin it. How many times have we done this, right? How many times have we been miserable because we were spending time with someone who wanted to be wise, or wanted to be kind, or wanted to be compassionate. It's really hard to be around those people. Really, don't you think? In some ways, it's, you know, it's when people are a little bit more comfortable in their skin being who they are, including, you know, greedy or needy or whatever, there's a certain ease because they're not pretending 
to be somebody that they think they're supposed to be. But when we bring awareness into the mix, we actually get interested when we feel separate, when we feel angry, when we're a lot of fear is operating. And we just get interested in observing that. That's already being kind, right? Because we're saying, okay, sometimes there's a lot of fear. Sometimes the heart is really angry. And it's like this. It feels like this. And it really starts to change. Let me read a little bit more here. After 45 years of meditative observation of myself and others, I have come to believe there is really no everlasting enlightenment or perfection. I think there is only love and, on occasion, moments of extraordinary clarity that can last seconds, minutes, or even months. But a millisecond of such clarity is enough to give us a new life, allowing us to respond to intermittent waves of unattended sorrow that call for our kind attention from closer to the heart. A little later. Perfection is the nightmare of the self-oriented mind. I really like that phrase. Perfection, right? The idea of perfection is the nightmare of the self-oriented mind. I mean, when I hear that, I just think of all the this, this sort of projection. First on myself, like what I'm not, that I think I should be, right? Or maybe what I think I am and other people aren't. But we project that same judgment on everybody else. It's a nightmare, all that judging, all that like who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad. Liberation is the nature of the all-accepting heart. The difference between bondage and freedom can be, can be felt in the space between perfection and liberation. Right? So perfection is the nightmare of the self-oriented mind or the self-centered mind. Liberation is the nature of the all-accepting heart. The difference between bondage and freedom can be felt in the space between perfection and liberation. When we liberate ourselves from the insistence on perfection, we see that the perfectionist is often incapable of experiencing these moments of spontaneous perfection because we're so busy on being perfect. And it's like an aggressive, you know, omnipresent attitude of mind. And, you know, the more we project an idea of me being perfect, we never get there because what we've gotten good at is projecting an idea of perfection. That doesn't stop. So even if somehow through hard work and a lot of self-hatred, we force ourselves to become, you know, an extraordinary human being like an Olympic athlete can, you know, train themselves to do amazing things or artists and other folks, you know, basically like animals, they can be trained to do all kinds of tricks, you know, whether it's tricks of philosophy or tricks of medical science, you know, being a good doctor or tricks of being an artist or an Olympic athlete. So that's perfection. 
But, you know, to the degree that all of that drivenness that leads to sort of extraordinary skills, you know, to the degree that it's coming from this fear of not being perfect, fear of death or whatever it might sort of deep down be driving it, it's all suffering. Even if that doctor, you know, discovers the cure for cancer, what they're really modeling is, I can't really include myself as I am. Right? That's the vibe that we're modeling for everybody else. I don't really want to be real. I can't find it in my heart to accept myself. And so we're basically saying to everybody around us, I don't think you should accept yourself either. We're just generally unacceptable who we are. Self-hatred is the way. I mean, we would never say that out loud, but that's mostly, or you know, at least to some degree, how we're living our life when we're driven by one version of perfection or another. Now, self-acceptance, that term, it can be misunderstood or misused, you know, like, so what makes it real, the self-acceptance real, is recognizing the capacity to feel. Like this moment, who we are or what we are, what's showing up in this moment, the world, this body, this conditioned heart, or as Stephen Levine says, you know, the unattended sorrow, like the wounds that we carry that haven't been healed. It's a mess. What we open to when we show up in the moment. But the showing up is quite beautiful. So the Buddha and, you know, other wise folks, they they never said that there isn't beauty. I mean, the whole point of the Buddha teaching was pointing toward real freedom, real healing, full, unshakable release of the heart, as it said in one of the discourses of the Buddha, the unshakable release of all that burdens, all that weighs down the heart, the unshakable release of the heart. I mean, I'm interested. (laughs) That gets my attention. I'm willing to check out what the Buddha points to. And one of the things he points to are these four attitudes of love. But it's not about being kind and being compassionate and being appreciative of what's beautiful and being equanimous no matter what. It's really more about being curious about like, where these qualities, these wholesome qualities are showing up and where they're not showing up. And being intimate when they're showing up and being intimate when they're not showing up. And this is really our homework. We're not looking for ideas of perfection. We're using our actual life. This, this is a quote, some of you know Mother Teresa. This, I think she was born in Eastern Europe but spent most of her adult life as a Catholic nun in India. And I, I saw her a couple times when she was visiting San Francisco when I lived there. And she's an impressive, you know, she's a powerhouse just even being in a space with thousands of other people. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't 
I'm not saying she's an enlightened being, who knows, but she's definitely a practitioner. Like, I didn't have any doubt about that. And it's just interesting the kind of choices she made, right, about, like, practicing showing up. Probably, first, you know, and showing up for the poorest of the poor, basically those who have nothing who are really sick or dying. That was her mission, basically, right? And then, probably much harder than that, running a big organization, right? Because there were like houses in a lot of the big cities around the world, including San Francisco, New York, but other places around the world where the Sisters of Charity would do this work of attending to those people who nobody wanted to attend to. And I'm sure running an organization with all those different people and being a celebrity was probably a lot harder than just, you know, meeting the people on the street who nobody wanted to be close to, bringing them in, washing their wounds, helping them in the dying process. So it's really impactful, like this simple quote, in this life, we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. Now that just resonates with me, and it really resonates, I think, with the Buddhist teachings, you know, just the emphasis on developing that full presence, that actual curiosity with ordinary moments. I've been really mentioning this a lot because I just find it such a great way to talk about refuge. So a lot of you know Pema Chodron, She's a wonderful teacher. She's written a number of books. She's in a different Buddhist tradition in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but she's a Western nun, Buddhist nun, um, and teaches um, around this country and other places based in uh, Nova Scotia. But anyway, um, she has this very simple phrase about refuge, which in, in Buddhism is is kind of like the seed of the practice. It's that deep intuition and all the other more nuanced teachings like being present and how to show up really come from the seed of refuge. And what she calls refuge, you know, she doesn't talk about awareness as the refuge or the conditions of the refuge, but she packages, she talks about it, but in this really great package where she says the refuge is Um, not being afraid to show up, knowing how to show up. Not holding back, I think, is the actual word she uses. Not holding back. You know, we usually talk, traditionally in Buddhism, we talk about refuge as Buddha knowing Dhamma. So that capacity to be awake, that capacity to include or to be sensitive, being sensitive with what's showing up in the moment the way it is. That's dharma, Buddha-knowing dharma. And when there's Buddha-knowing dharma, then there's sangha. A lot of times we think sangha is spiritual community, but it's really enlightened action or enlightened, wise or beautiful or kind engagement. That's actually what sangha means. It's, it's what moves when there's, whenever in a human being or maybe any being, whenever there's Buddha-knowing dharma, then Sangha moves, Sangha engages. So it's that nimble, creative, fearless engagement 
that comes because the wakeful heart, the kind and loving heart, is totally showing up, not holding back with the present moment, whatever is there in the body, in the mind, in us, around us. And that's what allows for enlightened action, beautiful action of sangha. And that's how we traditionally talk about the three refuges. And Pema Chodron says, you know, just summarizing the three as not holding back. And that's really how we can get involved in your formal sitting practice and informal daily life practice with investigating love. Do whatever you're going to do anyway, but practice not holding back, like really showing up with your whole heart. You're driving, really show up with your whole mind, heart, body. You're having lunch with a friend or you're chopping vegetables or you're clearing out the cat litter or whatever it is you're doing. Because either it's going to be an act of love See, there's no other choice. It's either an act of love and just to be provocative or it's an act of hate. There's no in between. And I really like that about what the Buddha says. It's like we're either taking a step in the direction of freedom or we're taking a step in the direction of hell. There's no sort of like, I'm going to hang out here a little later, I'll take some steps towards release. But that idea itself is a step towards hell, you know, towards more stress. Thinking that we can navigate the middle, like uh, being strategic with spiritual practice. No. We're either a deluded being, which is stressful, or we're waking up, which is liberating and healing for the heart. So I'll leave it there so there's a little time. Good buddy. Minutes be nice to hear from a few of you, your own wisdom, examples from your life, what's been in the way, moments of intimacy that arose spontaneously, moments of hate and heart closing down that arose that you'd like to share with the group, questions that have come up. Who would like to start? We are recording tonight, just so you know. Hey, Dave, on your way out, would you turn the top two lights up a little bit more? Or AJ, you're right there. Maybe not that bright. <laughs> we want to see clearly, but not, we're not ready for that kind of clarity. <laughs> so what have you been learning so far about love and all of its expressions, what gets in the way? Questions about the talk tonight. Femi, thank you for starting this off. Uh, First, always, thank you very much for the teaching. Um, I really appreciate the idea of love uh, being intimacy with what is, being really close to and just involved with what is in a wholehearted way. Uh, And one thing I'm noticing in my own world as... Uh, it feels like the wheels are falling off the bus, uh, is how uncomfortable love can be sometimes. <laughs> like, I think about like intimacy is just being like, it's always, it's great. It's intimacy, it's like being present with what is it. Uh, but 
like when there are challenges, like I think about just love, loving and being intimate with life as like a virtue that kind of let's always do that. Let's just always be intimate. with life. But I'm, I've, I've been paying attention to how it gets too intense and where there's wisdom in, in pausing from that degree of intensity and intimacy with life, just pausing from it momentarily, taking a deep breath, and then turning back to it. Yeah, so, or, or going away from it for a while. Yeah. Because that's Sangha too, right? Because we don't know right action. Like when you open to the experience of the wheels coming off the bus and the enormity and maybe the confusion of like, what does this all mean or what's next, right? Like whether you keep going in or whether it's more skillful like an act of love to turn away, to get refreshed or whatever, you can count on Sangha doing that, that enlightened action. So just knowing that it's too much, feeling like we're drowning in the unattended sorrow, to use Stephen Levine's phrase, you know, because that's, that's what we're afraid of, that if I'm really intimate, I'm just going to drown. Because the, there is no bottom to the suffering, by the way. You know, and one of the side effects of having had a, a relatively privileged life is it's easy to, for me, you know, to forget that. I have to work a little harder than others of you maybe in the room to realize that there really isn't an end to suffering. Because even if somehow we get in a good place and all the people we care about are in a good place, there's still a lot of people who are not in a good place. That's not going to end. And either we're throwing them out of our heart, what well, doesn't matter because you're not in my inner circle, or we're realizing there's real suffering and it actually doesn't matter that it's not mine in a kind of direct sense because I know you're suffering. So we can't do ex- exactly what Femi is saying. We can't just kind of, because that's sort of a, a diluted move. I'm just going to be intimate, keep being intimate, you know, get to the bottom, and then I'll be done. That's that perfection. That's a, one expression of that perfectionist misunderstanding. Like, let's just get done with this. Open to everything and be done with it. So part of like, that's why it's really nice to have these images or even like the phrase I just said, like there's no end to suffering because it shifts our strategy. Okay, like uh, I think some of you have heard me say this great line from Robert Thurman, who's a Buddhist scholar at Columbia. Maybe he's retired now. But he has this great line, like if we're in New York City and we're in one of those packed subway cars and we're around people we're not used to being around, whatever that is for you, you know, where we don't feel so comfortable, packed in with the whole all of humanity. But it's just a seven-minute two stops, you know. I can, you know, you put on your callous New York, you know, don't F with me. And then you get through it. But then he says, now imagine you're in that packed subway car with everybody for all of eternity. Well, you need a different strategy. Because... <laughs> Being closed down that with that sort of don't screw with me, you don't want to live that way forever. Seven minutes you can live that way, but not forever. So that will be really interesting. Like 
when you're really real and intimate and kind with yourself, how do you navigate this? And uh, like if you catch yourself doing things that give you some distance but come with uh, side effects, you know, then just ask, like, is there a better way to get some space around everything that's moving uh, that doesn't leave, doesn't have a heavy after effect, you know, whatever that might be. Because we all go through those times, you know, and we just, we have to have some space, like, I remember a friend just saying, you know, oh yeah, the last couple of weeks, I noticed how many hours of TV I watched. But, you know, what was the alternative? Maybe it was a better of three alternatives, you know, to watch a lot of TV. It's not ideal, but it might be a lot better than either going right into the pain in a way that really spins the person around or, you know, distracting herself with some, in some way that, you know, has not, not healthy after effects. Anything else you wanted to say about that, Henry? No, you, you answered uh, the next two questions I had, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Femi. Maybe we should leave it there. It's 9 o'clock. <laughs> Probably hit the nail on the head for a lot of us because it's not easy being a human being. So let's just sit in silence for maybe 30 seconds with that reality. Remembering that the package, being a human being, comes with 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And we never really know what's next. So may we find our way. May wisdom and love protect us and guide us. And may we find a way to support the freedom from suffering for all beings, to be a model of release and love. So may that be so. And thanks again, everyone. Always great to be together. Thanks, Femi, for sharing. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.